Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter this evening, the first letter of Peter, chapter 1. As I say, we come tonight to our next to last installment in this series on the golden chain of salvation. We've got tonight, we've got one more. There's still those printout sheets there in the back on that little bookshelf at the rear of the worship hall if you'd like to grab one just for your own personal benefit or reference. It's a helpful little visual, an overview of the golden chain, the Ordo Salutis. Now sometimes, as you're turning there, sometimes in the teaching on the doctrine of perseverance, folks end up talking more about preservation, uh, the preservation of the saints. Maybe you've heard that term. And admittedly, we're going to be doing some of that tonight, talking about perseverance and preservation. Uh, the two are indelibly linked. God preserves us, and so we persevere. But they are distinct. And so we'll try to highlight both and draw out that distinction in our text this evening. And at first blush, this passage may seem like it's talking more about preservation. But this is one of the texts cited by the Westminster Confession of Faith on its chapter regarding the perseverance of God's saints. And so I feel we're on pretty good ground in that case to consider it in our study on the doctrine of perseverance tonight. So first, let's look at the text. We'll read it, and then we'll pray. We're going to look at 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is God's holy word. Hear it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord God, please grant us the ministry of your spirit to our minds and to our hearts this evening so that we may understand what we read and that you would use your word in our hearts. Give us illumination and a love for and an attention to your word tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you're a good Presbyterian or any kind of good Calvinist, you know the P in tulip, right? You all know tulip and what is sometimes called the five points of Calvinism. Although, as an aside, if John Calvin were alive today, he would probably slap us all with a wet fish or something for naming our system of theology after him. Uh, He would abhor, I, I think, his name being called what is simply the doctrine of the Holy Scripture. Indeed, the great Charles Spurgeon famously said, Calvinism, by another name, is simply biblical Christianity. 
But nevertheless, here we are. People know it as the five points of Calvinism in any case. So TULIP is a, a short summary for our understanding of salvation or soteriology. And the P there in TULIP is for perseverance of the saints. Perhaps it is one of the more underappreciated doctrines of the scripture. Our Westminster Confession of Faith back in chapter 17, section 1, puts it like this. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Or as the Puritan John Flavel put it, did Christ finish his work for us? Then he will also finish his work in us. Tonight we want to think about that glorious doctrine of perseverance. How is God keeping you, Christian? Because let's be honest, our faith, yours and mine, even on our best of days, is fickle and frail. If it were up to us, our salvation, I don't know about you, but mine would have been lost a long time ago if it were in my strength. But praise God, we are keeping on in the faith because we are being kept. We are being kept. Let's think about that. One article that I I read about this doctrine outlined it along three lines, the nature, the basis, and the context for Christian perseverance. And so that's how I'd like for us to study our first Peter passage this evening, the nature, the basis, and the context of Christian perseverance. So let's look first then at verses 4 and 5. Here we have the nature, the nature of perseverance. Peter says, We've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says it is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Now, of course, the word imperishable refers to freedom from death and decay. Undefiled refers to freedom from mortal or moral stain and impurity. Unfading refers to a, a kind of freedom from the ravages of years, a chronological ravaging that we know all too well. One scholar put it like this. The inheritance that Peter speaks about here toward God's saints is untouched by death unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty, close quote. The point that Peter is making is that if we are Christians, our destinies are secure. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, heaven is reserved for you. John 14 In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions in the King James Version, and I go to prepare a place for you, says the Lord Jesus. According to Peter, one of the royal holy emissaries, one of the royal holy ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Peter, nothing can erode it or change it. It is kept. But then he also says, and I like how one preacher put it, Not only is heaven being kept for us, but if we are believers, we are being kept for heaven. 
By God's power, Peter says in verse 5, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, it's not just that God has reserved heavenly glory for us. He has. But also there's this idea of, if you like, precious cargo on its way to a destination. We are being kept on the way there. The precious cargo is to be handled with care. Right? You, you can't just throw it in the back of the truck carelessly and drive recklessly however you want and expect it to arrive in one piece. No, there is a deliberate intentionality to how this precious cargo is being kept. Do you see the language there in verse 5? We are being guarded, Peter says. There's a watchfulness as to how we are being handled on this sure and certain trajectory toward glory. And if you transport precious cargo, not just any manner of driving is appropriate. Likewise, it is with our living, dear Christian friends. Not just any manner will do. Well, you're going to go get to the final destination anywhere, so who cares how you drive the truck? Who cares how you live your life? No, no. There's a reason in the golden chain of salvation, in the, in the logical order of how God is working our salvation in us, there's a reason that perseverance comes right after the doctrine of sanctification. Remember sanctification? It's been a few weeks. We've had the, the hustle and bustle and the frenetic energy of the holidays, but think back with me a few weeks ago to sanctification. God's given us, remember, new affections, and thus he's given us a power for a new obedience. The law is no longer a slavish taskmaster, but in Jesus Christ it comes back to us as our friend. We are, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, enabled really, really and truly to obey, to love God's law and to obey his commands. We really can, brothers and sisters, not perfectly, not in this life, but yes, truly. Remember Jesus again in John 14, if ye love me, what? Keep my commandments. New obedience, grace-enabled obedience. It is a fruit of regeneration. It's a demonstration of the genuineness of your faith. That's what Peter is talking about here. Keep on doing it. Keep on believing. Keep on trusting. Keep on obeying. You're going to be tempted not to. You're going to be assaulted by sin and Satan's devices. You may be tempted to fall away. And maybe some days you feel just like you might. You just might fall away. But you keep on persevering. You keep pressing on. You keep clinging to Christ. You keep on in faithful obedience to the Lord who died and rose for you. And by his grace and by his sovereign will, you won't fall away, believer in Jesus. You will persevere. You will keep on because he is keeping you. You, blood-bought saint, blood-bought believer in Jesus, blood-bought precious child of the Lord, God Almighty, you are kept in him. Don't give up. And by his grace, by his grace, you won't give up. Praise God. That's why, by the way, sometimes we, we Reformed folks will say that the phrase once saved, always saved, uh, is a bit of a, a crass, clunky way of putting it. We don't say that just to be snobs or to be snotty, but rather we, we simply want to say that a phrase such as the perseverance of the saints is a more faithful and, 
and sensitive and, dare I say, biblically nuanced way of describing a a similar phenomenon, the perseverance of the saints. God is guarding his people for glory, and though they may sin greatly and stumble along the way, he is purifying them, he is growing them, he is fitting them for heaven, to borrow the language of the Christmas carol ensuring that they will get there and they will be ready for it once they arrive, kept, guarded, and preserved by God's power through faith there in verse 5. And, this is important, not only is God doing it, and, verse 7, it shows. It shows. You can see it. The tested genuineness of your faith. In other words, your faith... And the fact that God is preserving you will prove itself. Peter is saying, as you grow in years, as you, as you live life long with Christ, you may in fact endure many hardships. But in the end, your God-given faith will prove genuine. And, and you've probably noticed, as I've already sort of given away, uh, the, given away the, the hint here, we've, we've been using both words preserve and persevere. Many times in that golden chain of salvation, we speak of two things. The things that God does, and then the effects that it produces in us. God gives the new birth, we respond in faith and repentance. God does X, we are affected in Y, Z. God sanctifies, we pursue holiness. Here, God is preserving us, thus we persevere. I love how one commentator put it. He said, preservation is the work of God over us and toward us and for us. And though for a season it may feel like sin, your sin and mine has overwhelmed us. The Lord promises to preserve us and we walk the long, good path of obedience. When it hurts, when it costs to say no to sin and yes to godliness, God keeps and enables us to do rightly. And in the end, the victory will be Christ's, close quote. So that's the first thing that we need to see here from this passage, is the nature, the nature of perseverance. What happens as God preserves and as his people persevere? But then secondly, we also see here the basis, the basis of our perseverance. What's the reason for perseverance happening? Well, it's kind of a chain reaction, Peter says. Notice the connection of verses 3 and then 4 and then 5. Peter starts in verse 3 by anchoring this whole glorious chain reaction in the great mercy of God. Do you see that? He starts with an interjection of praise. It's almost as if his thoughts are are moving faster than his pen. Some of you know what that's like. Sometimes our our mouth moves faster than our thoughts. Sometimes our thoughts move faster than we can type or we can write. That's what seems almost as if what's happening with the pen of the Apostle Peter here is he's superintended by the Holy Spirit because he knows what he's about to say as he's he's meditating on it and he just can't contain his joy. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Get ready, get ready for what I'm about to tell you, he says. And then, according to his great mercy, verse 3, it all starts there, according to his great mercy. The roots of our Christian lives, he's telling us, the roots of our Christian living, and everything that happens in our salvation, and therefore, ultimately, the root of our perseverance is the mercy of God. Remember, God determines... 
This is going way back in our Ordo Salutis series. But remember, God determines, God purposes to save us in his eternal counsel before he laid the earth's foundations. And in his mercy, he determines to keep us and to persevere us to the end. Remember how Jesus put it way back in John 6, verse 39? This is the will of him who sent me, Jesus said, that I should lose a few? Nothing. Nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up at the last day. Or John 10, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says regarding his own people, his elect, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. How is this possible? Jesus answered it in John 10, verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. The will of God is that Jesus should save us and preserve us. The Father has given to Jesus sinners to save, and no one can snatch them out of his hands because we are also in the Father's hands. Isn't that glorious? A double layer of protection and a cosmic scale. To even, to even call it a double layer of protection is almost insulting. To be simultaneously cradled in the hands of Almighty God the Father and cradled within the palm of the hands of Jesus the Savior. And then Peter points out, not just to the mercy of God there in verse 3, that it's the ultimate root of God's preservation of us, but he also speaks there of our new birth which, if you like, is the root of our perseverance. So if the mercy of God is the root of God's preservation, then our new birth is the root of our perseverance. See, we're using both those terms, trying to tease both of these distinctions out of the text here. How do we keep on persevering? He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What is that living hope? Well, it is, of course... Namely, a person. Namely, Jesus. He is that hope. And he is risen. He is risen indeed. He is living forevermore. God has worked in us a new birth and we've been born into a new life that is bound up in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus such that, as if this were even, as if this were even conceivable, such that if he were ever to die, then our life would be ended. We are so bound up in him. But guess what? That is impossible. We have no dead hope. We don't even have the risk of having a dead hope or an empty hope. There's not even a chance of having an empty hope. Christ is risen, and he ever lives, and he never again will die. He lives eternally. And so we live now, and we will live eternally. Our hope and this new life that God has granted us is permanent and fixed. It is established and empowered by virtue of his death and glorious resurrection. And because of his resurrection, Peter says, we live. And that life that we now live, we live in him, and it can never, ever, ever be extinguished. Why do you keep on persevering, Christian? Because your perseverance is fueled and empowered by a living hope. A living hope. 
Also notice Peter points out, verse 5, there's a third thing here in this, this second point, to the power of God. He's causing us to persevere, verse 5, and he preserves us day by day until finally he brings us safely home at the end. We're, we're living in this new life to which he's brought us, and as we live, we are those, Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded. There's a fourth thing that we have to mention. Again, verse 5. So much happening here in verse 5. Fourthly, he points out, to faith as the instrument through which we persevere. We are being guarded by God's power through faith. Faith, if you like, is the instrument by which we take hold of God's promises. Faith is the channel. Faith is the means. Whatever appropriate descriptor you'd like to use. It is the channel by which the blessings and the realities of God's grace and his promises and his mercies, it's it's the, the vehicle through which the benefits of Christ are conveyed to us. Faith is the outstretched hand that clings to Christ. Faith is believing God, trusting him, trusting his promises, and clinging to him. And faith, according to the Apostle Peter here, is the means by which we keep on persevering. The channel, the venue, the, the, the pipeline, the viaduct, whatever you like, through which the benefits, the redemptive benefits of God in Christ are communicated to us. It is the means by which we keep on persevering. Now, I say this because sometimes people think that a rigid, thorough routine of Christian devotion and practices of piety are the key to the Christian life. You know... You pray seven times a day, you read ten chapters of the Bible every day, you sing hymns and you sing psalms in your living room, and you make sure your children memorize the catechism, and then you think, if all of these pieces are in place, the Christian life will be a success. Now please don't hear what I'm not saying, and please don't misunderstand me. I want to be very clear and very careful. All of those things are very good things. Sanctification is essential. Obedience is right. It is essential. Perseverance implies that we keep on in actually doing something, yes? We should all, I suspect, be praying more, reading God's word more, marinating our souls in the rich doctrine and truths of the gospel through which we have access in our hymns and our psalms and our catechism and our our reading and our prayer. Yes, all good things. However, if those things are not built upon the foundation of trusting faith, in the strength and the power and the goodness of Christ, it's all for naught. Maybe an analogy. Here, here, here's an analogy that my, my, one of my dear friends, Scott, likes to use. Scott, before he became uh, an ordained minister, he used to be a, a personal athletic trainer. Actually, prior to his, prior to his conversion, he was a, a personal athletic trainer. People would come to Scott all the time, and they'd say, I want to lose weight. And he said, that's good. Good. want to be healthy. want to be more fit. That's good. And they'd be exercising, and they'd be exercising every day and doing all kinds of cardio and all kinds of weightlifting. And he'd inquire of them why they didn't seem to be making progress. And they'd tell him their exercise routine. And he says, well, that sounds very thorough. What's your diet like? And their diet would be atrocious almost every time. And they'd wonder why they were not losing weight. 
And he would tell them, brother, it doesn't matter if you're running five miles a day and you're doing sprints and cardio and you're doing 200 crunches morning and evening. If your diet consists of nothing but cheeseburgers and McDonald's fries and gallons of sugar-laden soda every day, it's not going to make a lick of difference. If the foundation, namely, namely your diet, is rotten, the exercise will be for naught. In other words, we practice rigorous Christian devotion. We practice thoroughgoing Christian piety, not trusting in our own strength, not, not trusting in the intensity of our own devotion or the, the brilliance of our own Bible study insights. We don't trust those things to make our piety effective. We trust the Lord Jesus. That's the foundation that makes our piety effective. Why, why is my Bible reading and prayer effective at making me more godly? Is, is it because of me and the fact that I do it ten times a day? No. The potency that makes it effective is Christ. He promised to fashion us after his likeness, and we trust him, and we believe and trust his word. He will make good on his promises. And so I keep on doing those things. I keep on praying. I keep on reading. I keep on studying. He is the one who makes it effective, not my rigor. I believe him. I have trusting faith, and so I do those things. A well-grounded faith, the way the Bible defines faith, not the way that popular culture defines faith, a well-grounded faith looks away from our frailty and our inconsistency and our weakness, and it looks to the abundant supply of rich grace available to us in Jesus Christ It's not our deep and profound spiritual feelings that makes the Christian life effective. Not strict obedience, but faith rather that looks not here, but here, to Christ enthroned by faith. That's what makes it effective. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Faith looks to Christ. And as we do, we are enabled to put one foot in front of the other for today and tomorrow and the day after that and the week after that and the month after that slowly and as hard and as painful as it is but slowly by God's grace we trust Christ and through that viaduct of faith we take hold of his goodness and his benefits and his strength and we persevere. The success, if you like, of our Christian perseverance lies not in my intensity, but the object of faith from whom it flows, namely your Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing. First, the nature, then the basis for Christian perseverance, but then thirdly, notice what Peter says about the context, the context for perseverance. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. In this, Peter says, you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. How's that work, Peter? You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, there's faith again, the key to perseverance, believing Christ and believing that he's going to make good on his promises, faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, verse 7, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, namely, the salvation of your souls. God is preparing a place for you. There's a final destination that he's getting ready for you. He's keeping heaven for you. Peter's saying to them, and he's keeping you, guarding you, preserving you for heaven. That's what God is doing throughout the course of your Christian life. Yes, But where? Where is he doing it? What's the context? Well, he's doing it, according to Peter here, in the midst of various trials that grieve them deeply. Christian perseverance, according to the Apostle Peter, happens in the context of grievous trials. Indeed, they are more than just merely the context, merely the the arena in which your growth and perseverance occurs. Actually, they are the tools, the very tools God uses to produce your perseverance and equip you to live a life of dependence on the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice if we could learn perseverance without trials? But we know that's a self-defeating sentiment. Without hardships, there's nothing to resist. There's nothing difficult in which to persevere. That's like saying, I'd like to win a war, but I don't want to use any soldiers, any ships, any aircraft, or any missiles. It's impossible. But God our Father, who loves us, has ordained for each of us that. And in ways that are likely unique to each of us, that we would be preserved in and through these trials. He says, Peter says, trials are designed to be like a refiner's fire that burns off dross, burns off the impurities, so that the gold is all that's left. Gold is beautiful, yes? That's why it's a precious metal. That's why it's so valuable and esteemed. But you know, in order for it to become the beautiful, valuable brilliant, shining element we all recognize and admire. You can't just brush the dirt off with a soft, bristled brush gently or buff them off with a soft towel. No, it has to pass through fire. Intense, deliberate heat to burn away the impurities in order to render the brilliant, splendid thing that you desire so much. Friends, I I want strong, pure, biblical, precious faith, the kind of precious faith that Peter speaks of here, the kind of faith that clings to Jesus, resting and trusting in no one else, in nothing else, and I believe that you do too. And Peter says that's what God designs trials to do, to, to pry us away like a, like a kind of cosmic crowbar to stop putting our confidence in anything else. Any other resource where we might be trying to look for strength. And trials come. And they show us the inadequacy and the bankruptcy of all other things. So that when you have nothing else to hold to you, you have no other choice. You have no other choice but to cling to Jesus. There's nothing else to grip onto and Jesus is all you have. And the Lord says, that's exactly the point. And that's exactly where I want you to be. Peter, as he says these things in verses 8 and 9, he's, he's realistic. He's, he's writing to a people who are in exile on account of their faith. You see that way up at chapter 1, verse 1? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are, these are believers who are scattered on account of their faith. Not because they like to travel and spread out across the country and check out different regions. They're forced to move and they're forced to suffer and they're forced to flee harm these elect exiles. He knows whereof he speaks. These trials hurt. They are sore. 
But Peter says along with that grief, there's joy. It's not joy in circumstances. He's not calling them for to be sadistic. But it's joy in Christ. Joy in Christ in the midst of those circumstances. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Verse 8, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Here's the pressure point, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ must be more precious to us, even than life itself. Is he? Because if we are living for absolutely anything else, if Jesus is simply a means to an end, if, if he's not to us the be-all and end-all, then the trials, which will still come to us, they will only rob us of what joy and comfort we have. Peter wants us to see that the point of our trials and the point of God's preserving us is to bring us to that point where we can echo the psalmist in Psalm 73. Remember what it says there? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you, O God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what God is after. That's what he's up to, if you like, in all of this grand design. He wants you to see his glory and grace in Jesus and to press on and cling only and wholly to him. And when that happens, if you look at verse 7, when you are brought through trials, when you're brought through them clinging to Christ, and you're slowly, slowly putting one foot in front of the other, persevering and pressing on, eventually you arrive home, verse 7. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking there about the great end day, the great last day. Eventually you arrive home, and what happens? Jesus gets glory. Glory and honor is what comes to Jesus Christ when we persevere. And we persevere through Christ while he brings us there. And do you see he's working that glory into our reality now? Verse 9, you, you press on with hope. You don't see him. You don't physically see him with your, with your own two eyeballs. But you press on with hope. You know the reality of truth such that it produces joy inexpressible and filled with glory now leading to the eventual outcome your salvation. And when you arrive at that celestial shore, the angels will look and they will say, look what Jesus did. And you'll join them. You'll join them, dear saints, even more loudly. Look what Jesus did to make a wretch his treasure. I didn't do it. Look what Jesus did. And praise and honor and glory will be his at the last day. Look what Jesus did. And look at what the Lord is doing in you even now, dear saints. He's preserving and he's persevering you, Christian. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name as he preserves you. And we persevere all the way home, even unto glory. Praise God for the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Praise God for his word to us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you and bless you for your word. And we pray that you would seal it to our hearts this night for our growth in grace, for our deepening trust and adoration of you, so that we would keep on, trusting that indeed we are keeping on while we are being kept. 
all the way home to glory. This we pray for Jesus' sake, and we bless you for it. Amen.